Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, please. Romans chapter 13, page 1137, if you're using a pew Bible. Romans chapter 13. This morning we return again to this chapter under the heading of a manifesto for Christian citizenship. We have been here for four weeks so far, and we have been talking about how to value our government as a believer. What does the Scripture have to say to us with regard to our relationship with our government? And it is that we are to value them, and one of the ways we value them is by submitting to their leadership and authority over us. And we have been working away on that now for the last month. We continue to talk about valuing the government this morning under the heading of taxes. Paying our taxes is a way for us to value our government. But as we get started, let's just let the Apostle Paul speak to us this morning through the inerrant Word of God. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Pray with me, please. O Lord God, we open your inerrant word together this morning. And we pray, our Father, that you would extend your grace to us. O Lord, as we look into difficult things, things hard to receive, we pray, our Father, that you would give us listening ears. We pray, O Lord, that your Spirit would quicken our hearts and that we would receive the truth that you have for us in this passage. Oh, Lord God, we love you and we desire to obey you. 
But Lord, we struggle. We fail. We fall. And so even now in this place, O Lord of the Word, reign supreme for Jesus' sake. Amen. Benjamin Franklin once said that in the world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And I'd like to add to that that neither one of them are particularly pleasant options. But that's the world we live in, death and taxes. Did you know that April 9th of this year, just two months ago, was a very special day? Did you know that? April 9th. April 9th was Tax Freedom Day in America. Tax Freedom Day. What that means is that on April 9th, the average American worker had earned sufficient income to pay all of his federal, state, and local tax obligations. And that beginning on April 10th, everything that he or she would earn from that point forward would belong to them. April 9th, Tax Freedom Day. One comedian, in commenting on this, said that's why he doesn't work very hard in the beginning part of the year, because he's working for the government. Tax Freedom Day, April 9th. It actually varies a little bit from state to state. The longest time you have to wait for Tax Freedom Day this past year was in the state of Connecticut, where you had to wait 117 days. Took the longest. State of Arizona, or excuse me, the state of Alaska, the state of Alaska, you work the fewest number of days, 85 in order to achieve tax freedom. California, I think, is 99, if I remember correctly. The state of California is 99. For the tax year ending 2009, Americans pay, on average, federal, state, and local taxes, 26.9% of their income. 26.9. In India... The average is 20%. 20%. In Germany, the average is 51.7%. 51.7. In Sweden, it is 57%. 57% of your income in taxes. Nobody likes to pay taxes. But that's not just a modern phenomenon. You know that, right? The ancients didn't like to pay taxes either. But Ben Franklin, he was on to something. They are a fact of life. They are a reality. And the Apostle Paul says that when we approach the issue of taxes, that we need to have a mindset that has been shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we understand the grace of God in our lives, that He has rescued us from the slave market of sin, that He has redeemed us and transformed us and made us citizens of a kingdom to come. 
And in the meantime, we remain here as pilgrims, as sojourners, as aliens passing through, living in this life and utilizing the benefits that God has foreordained for us and paying our fair share as we go. In the days of the New Testament, taxes were a big issue. A big issue. The Roman government was both efficient and merciless in its collection of taxes. The empire was, by the time of the first century and the birth of the church, it was descending into a welfare state in which increasing numbers of its citizens were on the public dole. The Roman government's response to this crisis was what has become known as bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. That's shorthand for governmental policy of distributing free wheat to the people in order to fill their bellies and providing at government expense various costly games that would divert their attention from the corrupt politicians that were systematically looting and bankrupting the empire. Bread and circuses. The system was corrupt from top to bottom. In order to keep the cash flow coming into the public coffers, the Roman government devised a very ingenious way to collect their taxes. They would sell tax collection franchises. Tax collection franchises. What that meant is that that various wealthy individuals would form a joint stock company and would purchase for a fixed price five years' worth of tax revenue from a particular province of the empire. These were sold in an open bidding affair, an auction. How much will you pay for all the tax receipts for the state of California, to put it in a more contemporary context? High bidder would then pay the Roman government up front the five years' worth of tax revenues and then would begin to systematically collect them. Anything they collected above and beyond what they had paid the government was their profit. And they had the might of the Roman army behind them to enforce their tax collection policies. They were ingenious. When it comes to squeezing money out of a turnip, the Roman government were masters. They were masters at it. By the way, these tax franchises would, at the, at the lower levels as they came down among the people, they would hire various citizens or individuals at the local level to do the collection. And it's, there's nothing better than to hire the, the, the people that are part of the, of, of the group you're trying to collect from because they know the ins and outs. They know the language. They know the way people try to hide and conceal income. And so they would, they would move it all the way down the line until they would hire the tax collector that we read of in the New Testament, which was the most despised individual in the Jewish eyes. Of course, Christ redeems tax collectors, doesn't he? He chose Matthew. To be one of his apostles. So to collect taxes for the Roman government was not 
a noble occupation. Now, the New Testament knows essentially three different Greek words to apply to taxation. And the reason there's three words is because there were all kinds of taxes. There were what is called census or poll taxes. They would take a periodic census. You remember reading about this. This is the census that was taken while Quirinius was governor. Everyone had to go to their own city, right? David goes to the city, or excuse me, Joseph goes to Bethlehem, the city of David, to register there because he was of the house and line of David and in order that he could pay his poll tax, his census tax. That would be paid by each individual and they would put them in their, in their home district so that they could count them all up and collect the right amount of money. By the way, this is the tax that Jesus refers to, or, or excuse me, that the authorities confront Jesus with in the temple, Matthew 22 and verse 17, where he says, bring me the coin used to collect the tax. You remember this? Whose pictures on the coin render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This was the census. This was the poll tax. It was despised. It was hated. Beyond that, there were what is called tribute or property tax or income tax. And it's kind of all gathered together. This one particular Greek word actually is a more general term for taxes, but it spoke basically of property tax and income tax. So at the local level, they would come in and they would assess your property. They would decide what it is worth your home, your vineyard, your livestock. And then they would assess a tax on that amount. They would also tax your income. The third tax was what is called custom or tolls or sales tax. It was kind of all of that rolled together. These were collected at the various transportation bottlenecks throughout the land. You want to cross the bridge? There's a toll. You want to cross through a major intersection of roads? There's a toll. You want to land goods at a seaport in Caesarea? There's a toll. You want to sell goods in the marketplace? There's a sales tax. As you drive your wagon down the road, you come to the crossroad, you are stopped and you are made to unpack your wagon. Take it all, take all the merchandise off the wagon. I want to look at it all because I'm going to assess a tax, a toll to cross this intersection. Get it all out. Get it on the ground. Let me look at it. That'll cost you about that much. Next. Well, aren't you going to help me put it back on the cart? Next. Doesn't take long to understand how the anger and the angst would build up among people were treated this way. They were merciless. They were efficient. They knew how to collect money. Now, that's just the taxes for the, for the Roman imperial government. You have to understand that it doesn't end there. That would be the equivalent of our federal taxes. We still have to collect at the local level and at the what we would call the state level. Local taxes... They're necessary to maintain the synagogue, to maintain the elementary schools, the public baths, support for the poor, maintenance of the public roads, the city walls, the city gates, 
all the other general requirements of the little town or city that you live in. That has to be paid for. And so at the local level, you would be assessed various taxes for all of these public projects and needs. That's the local tax. Then there is the Roman governor or procurator, right? And his entourage has to be supported. His royal court has to be taken care of. He has his expenses. Don't expect Rome to pay for them. Because after all, he's governor over you for your own benefit. So you will be assessed a charge to pay for Pilate and all of those that work for him and support of his household and his various palaces that he would live in. Winter palace, summer palace. You get the idea. It's into this mess. Into this mess of political corruption, oppressive taxation, cynical, unethical politicians that the Apostle Paul writes to us the words of Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. Now, I remind us of all of that so that we have a little bit of context to understand what it is he is saying and how radical it was. This is not easy stuff to write. Let me remind you of something kind of obvious. The Apostle Paul was a Jew, just in case you forgot. He was a Jew. He was steeped in Judaism. He had been a Pharisee. He hated Rome until God got a hold of his heart. Until God got a hold of his heart and absolutely transformed this man. Now, he didn't become a lover of taxation at that point. You need to understand what, what conversion does. What conversion does is it, it, it transforms our thinking so that we can begin to, to think God's thoughts after him. It makes us a, an appreciative people because God has poured out rich mercies upon us. It changes the way we view the world and, and we can see beyond the temporal to the eternal. And when we can look beyond the temporal and see the eternal, see the sovereign purposes of God, then we can begin to rejoice even in things like taxation. So Paul writes into this mess these words. A standard, by the way, that is only possible by a gospel-saturated mind. Transformed by the grace of God. Then you can begin to think rightly. So we continue this morning. We continue together this morning to consider Paul's command to submit. To submit. So that you and I will begin to take seriously our civic responsibility as Christians. To be salt and light in a world. To live different, differently than the unredeemed. Verse 6, but because of this, you also pay taxes. Now, Paul's argument here is fascinating to me. 
Because what he is doing here is he is lifting the payment of taxes out of the realm of economics. And he's putting that aside. And he is placing it squarely in the realm of Christian ethics. That is, that our response to the tax man is an outworking of our Christian ethic brought about by the transformation, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, ultimately brought about by the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, Romans chapters 1 through 11. And so conversion affects taxation or tax payment. It's all related together. It's it's the Christian life. We We don't live in cubicles. I follow God here, but over here, nah. Our life has to to flow. The Christian life flows in every direction. So how does Paul go about lifting the topic of taxation out of the realm of economics and, and into the realm of Christian ethics? Well, it's interesting. He does it by three statements. Three statements. Take a look at the first one with me here. Verse six. I have an outline for you, by the way, on the back of your bulletin, if you're trying to follow along. The first statement, I'm, I call it Christian conscience. That's the first way he does it is by Christian conscience. Verse six, beginning for because of this, you also pay taxes. Stop there. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Now, we're, we're jumping into a context, so we need to just back up a little bit. Verse 5, Paul says, Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. There, he's making a conclusionary statement about living in submission to authority and saying it is the outworking of the conscience, the Christian's conscience. That is, the response of the Christian to the sovereign plan and purposes of God, which he has clearly spelled out for us in verse 1, chapter 13. We submit because we understand that God is the source of all authority and that God is the one who raises up specific authorities over us. Because we understand that, theologically, our conscience is bound and therefore we submit and we submit happily because submitting to man, in this case, is ultimately submitting to God. That's the argument. Of course, we saw last time he goes beyond that, verses 3 and 4, he says you submit Because of wrath as well, which is, guess what? If you don't submit for a noble purpose, you will submit anyway. And the consequences are not going to be all that pleasant. So get on the train and submit for the right reasons. Your life will be much happier. So Paul is continuing here in verse 6. For because of this, what this? The antecedent for the this is the conscience. For because of conscience, you also pay taxes. He's he's moving the argument forward. It is the Christian conscience that plays into the discussion of paying taxes. Why do we do it? Because of conscience. What do you mean by because of conscience? Well, because we understand that God is the source of all authority, right? And that God specifically raises governmental authorities over us. It's part of his plan. We understand the will of God and we respond to it. It is our conscience that does that. So because of this, we pay taxes. We understand things, simple things like that governments need money to operate and taxes are the God-ordained means by which government receives the money necessary to operate. Government is the good gift of God. 
government needs money in order to operate. Money comes from taxes because we understand government is the good gift of God. We understand that God has established taxes as the means to fund the government, the good gift. We pay our taxes happily. Happily. Maybe not. Maybe that's where the work of grace comes in, huh? We understand a theological progression. There's a theological progression going on here. And we have to get on board and follow it through. And that will enable us to think rightly. When confronted with the tax man. Here. Humbly, we willingly submit to the government and we pay our taxes. Christian conscience. Let me ask you a question. If you were reasonably sure that you wouldn't get caught, would you cheat on your taxes? If you were reasonably sure you wouldn't be caught, would you cheat on your taxes? If your answer is yes, you're far from alone. According to an article written March of 2007 in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the author, Patricia Sabatini, writes the following. An estimated 30 to 40 percent of taxpayers cheat on their returns, defrauding the government of some $290 billion a year. According to an Internal Revenue Service analysis of the 2001 tax returns. She goes on to write, some believe the real percentage of tax cheats is much higher, and I would agree. More than 40% cheat on their taxes. The article continues, one of the chief reasons people cheat is because it is so easy. According to three Ohio business professors who looked at why so many normally honest citizens become tax thieves. The current tax system is based largely on voluntary compliance. Less than 1% of returns are audited. So most cheaters are not caught, and those who are usually face small penalties. According to the study, Financial need is rarely the primary motive for tax evasion. Most tax evaders are easily capable of paying the correct amount of taxes, she writes. The profile of a typical tax cheat. Male, under age 50, in a high tax bracket with a complex return. Dollar-wise, the biggest loss of tax revenue comes from people Underreporting their income, the government says. The self-employed dealing mainly in cash. Things such as lawn services, house cleaners, bars and barber shops systematically evade taxes because the opportunity to understate cash receipts is exceptionally high. You know, if it doesn't go through the register, who's to know? Studies indicate that the most common way to cheat is overstating charitable contributions, especially church donations. The professors advocate attacking the problem on several fronts. First, 
create a tax system where cheating is extremely difficult. One way would be to switch to a flat tax or a national sales tax, they write. Another would be to significantly increase audits and penalties. They acknowledge that implementing either would be unsavory politically. They said the government, this is their final solution, according to the article, they said the government also needs to do a better job promoting itself so people have a harder time justifying cheating. See, the reason people cheat is because they just don't understand. If we give them a little more information, then they won't cheat. Because that's the origin of all sin, right? A lack of information. If I just, oh God, if I just known. Their quote, the government needs a massive campaign to educate the public about the good taxes due in a civilized society. Let's hire a marketing company. That'll increase our tax revenues. I have a better idea. How about if the people of God begin to live and preach the gospel of Christ in a revolutionary way such that their citizens become transformed by the life-saving gospel and they become taxpayers who willingly and humbly submit to the authority over them? How about that for a solution? Nah, too radical. Christian conscience, beloved. We pay taxes because of Christian conscience. Secondly, governmental stewardship. Governmental stewardship. Back to verse 6. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Paul says we pay our taxes because we recognize, even though most of the government bureaucrats do not, that God is really behind and above the government. And that it is a stewardship issue. A stewardship issue. As a Christian, we willingly pay taxes because we understand God is behind and above it all. And that governmental office is really a stewardship. By the way, notice this is the third time where Paul stresses that civil authority comes from God. Do you see that? For the rulers are servants of who? God. How radical an idea is that, huh? They're servants of God. Actually, the word, the Greek word used here, translated servant, it's a really interesting word. Originally in the Greek, it, it referred to a person who served as a public official at their own expense. I know, somebody laughed. I mean, that whole idea is foreign to us, but not really. Not really, because in our own language, we talk about public servants. We talk about civil servants, don't we? Interesting. Because when our government was first formed, there was that notion that people served in government as a stewardship from God. Many served at their own expense or at nominal reimbursement. How far we've strayed. How far we've strayed. But understand something. Just because it's broken doesn't mean that God didn't design it for our good and that even broken, it's better than the alternatives. You have to keep that in mind. Even 
marriage messed up is better than no marriage at all. Even government messed up is better than no government at all. So we have strayed a long way from the notion of civil service, civil servants. But for Christians, we can and should get a hold of that idea. Notice Paul says, for rulers and servants of God, devoting themselves to this thing. This thing. What thing? Government. Suppression of evil and praise and promotion of good. That thing. And tax revenues are the means by which they are supported in the pursuit of that thing. Can't help but think... In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about, 1 Timothy 5, he talks about those who work hard at teaching and preaching are worthy of double honor, right? He says that a portion of the offerings of the people of God go to support those who labor hard in the Word of God. It's the same basic idea. Those that labor hard in in the stewardship of government are worthy of support. Devoting themselves, in verse 6, devoting themselves to this very thing. By the way, that expression, devoting themselves, I think it just gives really good insight into this role of a public servant or a civil servant. God raises up leaders not for their own personal aggrandizement, not for their own personal enrichment. He raises up authorities and leaders, governmental authorities over us as a stewardship to promote good and suppress evil. That's their purpose. That's their role. And they will be evaluated for how they perform that stewardship. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. See, at the final judgment, all those in authority will be held to account for how they dispensed the authority that was never theirs to begin with, was always God's. They were always a steward. They were always under Him and acting for Him. So how they did it will be what they're evaluated over and punished. Or rewarded. Government is of God. Those that are elected into public office in this country are servants and ministers of God. That's what Paul says. Therefore, it is logical, in my opinion, that we need more committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to engage in government. I think it's a... I think it's a an implication of this text that is unavoidable. We need people who, whose thinking has been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to come to understand that serving in government is a noble thing and it is a ministry, it is a stewardship, and they should give themselves to it. And maybe there would be less politicians lining their own pockets at the expense of the people. But that's going to require Christians to get involved in what is a messy business. It's a messy business. It's a difficult business for Christians to be involved in. Politics is by necessity compromise. And it is difficult 
it is difficult for a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to be one given to compromise, right? You, you have to know where to compromise, though. That's the big issue. What can you compromise and what will you not compromise? I think for some of our young people, I, wanna, I want to encourage you to think about a life of governmental service. It would be a noble life. It would bless the people of God and all others in society. Paul's not calling us to take over the government, by the way. Let me just say that. He's not, he's not calling upon Christians to take over the government and, and impose Old Testament law and let's bring in the kingdom. Even though if a few of our, our Dominion Theology brothers have kind of gone off the tracks that way. There will be no perfect society until Christ returns and establishes it. We're going to live in a broken and messed up world until then. But there is a place for the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to become involved in the task of public service. We shouldn't avoid it. God is calling you to it. Give yourself to it. What if I don't approve of what the government's spending my tax money on? I'll just voice that question because I've already had it voiced at me from a hundred directions. Yeah, but David, what if I don't approve what they're spending my money on? Do you think Paul approved of what Rome was spending his tax money on? Let me be serious. Pagan temples being supported out of the public tax base? Brutal wars of conquest as Rome subjugated one people group after another? You think Paul approved of all of that stuff? You think God approved of all of that? Of course not. But there's no escape clause here. Pay your taxes unless the government spends it on things that you don't agree with. Now that would be helpful, wouldn't it? doesn't work that way. We talked last week. There are, there are exclusions when our Christian conscience is called to bear and we cannot participate in certain things that the government might mandate of us. But until they mandate that of us, our response is humble submission. And you know what? Praise the Lord. Listen to me. Praise the Lord. We live in this country in this time and when there are public elections and we have an opportunity to have our voice heard. So shame on us if we don't say it. We don't do anything. So our own shame. But it's not a divine right. Democracy is not a divine right. You can search the pages of the Old Testament and you will never find a democracy. Democracy is a Greek idea. Now I'm not saying that I'm not happy to live in it. But I'm just telling you that God is not about democracies. In his providence, we live here and now. We have an opportunity to influence the direction of the government, how the money is spent. Use the opportunity. If you're a citizen, vote. If you're not registered, get registered. But understand, if you lose the election, you still pay your taxes and you pay them with a happy spirit. And you thank God 
that you have whoever you have in leadership over you because the alternative is horrific. Horrific. Pay your taxes, Paul says. It's a Christian conscience. Government is a stewardship, third. It is our spiritual duty. Verse 7. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Stop there. It's kind of the sum statement of the whole matter. It is a spiritual duty. It is a spiritual duty. By the way, the word translated render here, do you see it? Render to all what is due them. It it carries the idea with it of paying back or giving back something that is rightfully owed. The NSB gets it right on the money here. Render what is due them. Taxes, he says, to whom taxes due. That's that Greek word. It, It speaks of property tax and income tax. Custom, to whom custom. That's the, that's the tolls, that's the sales tax, that's the import duties. Pay your taxes. It's not an option, it's not voluntary. It's an obligation, a spiritual obligation. A Christian whose heart and mind has been transformed by the gospel can, can understand it that way and embrace it. That's radical living, by the way. That is radical living. If you start living your life like that, people are going to look at you and think you are crazy. And if this life was all there were, you would be crazy. But see, you know that this is not all there is, right? You do know that. How many know that? Yeah. Our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, I think there are going to be taxes in the millennial kingdom, so continue to get used to it. <laughs> Temple has to be supported somehow. How do we respond to this teaching? How shall we respond? Well, not like this. Not like this. Story is told of a man who had been cheating on his taxes for a number of years. He listened to a sermon like this about taxes, and he came under conviction. Felt like he needed to do something about it, so he wrote an anonymous letter to the IRS. In his letter, he said, Dear sirs, I have been cheating on my income tax for many years now and have found that I've arrived at the point where I cannot sleep. So, enclosed, please find my check for back taxes. If I find that I still cannot sleep, I will send you the balance. (laughs) Not like that. Like this. Like this quote from Justin Martyr, apologist, church father of the second century, writing to the Roman Emperor Antonius Pius. The believers were being persecuted at this point 
the Roman Empire. And so he was a writing as an apologist. He was making a defense of the Christian faith. And he was saying, you really shouldn't be persecuting us because we are your best citizens. So listen to what he writes to this Roman emperor. And then imagine someone writing a letter to the president of the United States on behalf of the Bible-believing Christian community. He writes, Everywhere we Christians, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by him, that is Jesus. For at that time some came to him and asked him if one ought to pay tribute to Caesar. And he answered, Tell me, whose image does the coin bear? And they said, Caesar's. And again he answered them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Whence to God alone we render worship, but in other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you be found to possess also sound judgment. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? On behalf of the believers, the beleaguered believers, hiding in caves and holes in the ground that they be not exterminated, they write to the highest authority in the known world and they put forth their case. And they say, listen, don't kill us. We're your best taxpayers. That's radical. That's radical. Let me close this morning with this question for you. It's really for all of us to think about. The question is this. Does your tax return reveal or conceal your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does your tax return reveal or conceal your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray for His grace in all of our lives because you know what? I'm just going to say it. If 30 to 40%, and I think the number is probably higher, are cheating on their tax return, then there are some among us who have some repenting to do. May God grant us grace to repent and live for Him. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for His atoning sacrifice. Thank You for His brutal death on our behalf. Thank you, our Father, that all of our sin was loaded upon Him. That all of our guilt was squarely placed there. Past, present, and future. 
And so, Lord God, we don't come to you this morning as a people that is perfect. We come to you as a people that is imperfect, fallen, broken, twisted, ravaged by sin. The Lord, one area where sin has ravaged many of us is in the area of greed. Our greed stinks to the heavens. Our quest for the things of this earth, things that are transient and passing, and yet they have captured our fancy. Oh Lord God, it has even led some of us into the place of doing that which is both wrong and illegal. Oh Father, forgive us, transform us, cleanse us, renew us, and help us to come back onto the path of righteousness. Oh Lord, let us not congratulate ourselves, those of us who have not fallen prey to this snare, this sin. Let us not pat ourselves on the back and, and think, we're okay, I've never done that. Oh Lord, there are a million things we're guilty of. If you were to mark transgressions, our Father, who could stand? So, Lord God, we throw ourselves under your mercy. We plead with you for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. We desperately need your grace to be mediated to us through the gospel that we might live a transformed life. Oh, help us, our Father, to be a people of God, a kingdom of priests. Let the world see the difference. And may that difference give us the platform to speak about Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Why don't you come, Ron, and lead us in a song. Send us home.